Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians will be focusing our attention on verses 6 through 10 this morning. Before we begin to read this portion of Scripture this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the value of exclusivity. The value of exclusivity. Now, as you read through the Word of God, you continually see repeated this idea and the statement that the Lord is a jealous God. That the Lord is a jealous God. Now, when you're young, you're told that it's not a good thing to be jealous, right? That you need to be content with the things that the Lord has given you and not waste your emotion on coveting that which is not yours. We all have things that we can become jealous about. As I drive down I-85 on the way to Atlanta to visit my sister and her family, I will find myself coveting those who have those nice tricked out Suburbans, right? The nice big cars with the TV screens and we're all seven of us shoved into our small uh, Honda Odyssey and I begin to be jealous of them. I want what they have. I don't want the payment, but I want the vehicle, right? And I have to check myself. Nevertheless, that's not the type of jealousy that the Lord has for His people. It's not a covetous jealousy that is rooted in wanting something that is not His. Rather, it is an expression of the exclusiveness of the relationship between God and His people. Now, what do I mean by the exclusiveness of relationship? Well, just as the relationship between a husband and wife is exclusive in nature, so too is the relationship between God and His people. There, are no, there is no room for other gods. To worship or serve any god but the one true God is adulterous in nature, and that is the very image that the Word of God uses to speak of those who seek after other gods and not worship the one true God exclusively. For the very nature of the relationship between God and His people requires exclusivity. And it would be wrong not to feel jealousy if your partner abandoned you for another. When the Lord delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, He brought them to the base of Mount Sinai, and there He delivered to them the law Yet while Moses was on the mountain, the people of Israel quickly turned aside from following the Lord and went to worship false gods. In Exodus 32, verse 7, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. You see, the Lord had saved the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt by mighty works and wonders. He has just saved them through the parting of the Red Sea. And yet they quickly turned aside to worship other gods. They were like a wife who commits adultery on the night of her wedding. No wonder her husband burns with jealousy. For the nature of the relationship between God and His people is exclusive to the extent that to worship other gods is to turn from your relationship with God. That is to say, if you worship other gods, you can't say that you also worship the Lord. 
Now, the other religious systems of the nations may have afforded their followers the right to worship any god that they chose to worship. There seems to be every indication that the ancient people would worship a variety of gods. They were polytheistic. There are many different gods who they would seek to follow and appease. But the nature of the relationship with the one true God is exclusive. He is a jealous God who will not tolerate His people to pursue and worship other gods. And this exclusivity was such that the very nature of the relationship between God and His people was predicated on their exclusive fidelity to Him. For what was the very first commandment that He gave to His people as their Lord? You shall have no other gods before Me. Now this command was not the popular line to follow in the ancient Near East any more than it is for us to follow today. For we are a people and a culture who abhor the idea of exclusiveness. We want to be open and inviting. We want to be inclusive. However, it is all of God's grace that He is jealous for the worship of His people. For once a person begins to worship any God but the one true God, he has left aside what is true life. He has abandoned the fountain of living water to use an illustration. And he has begun to pursue satisfaction from empty, dry canteens that are filled with sand. You see, it would be cruel for the Lord not to be jealous for his people. It would be cruel for him to send his children to desolate wastes. For we only know true satisfaction in the exclusiveness of our relationship with God. We must understand this value of exclusivity when we come to Galatians 1, 6 through 10. For Paul echoes the very words of Exodus 32 as he confronts the waywardness of the Galatian churches. And what we will see is that because the gospel they were adopting was adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was no gospel at all. That is to say, the exclusive nature of the gospel means that to add anything to it is to neuter it of its power. It's to corrupt it to its very core. To add to the gospel is to destroy the nature of the gospel by definition. For there is no other gospel than that of Jesus Christ. So here now, the words of the Lord, Galatians 1, we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, whom raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you now and we ask that you would guide us, O oh God, by your word and your spirit. That in your light we may see light and in your truth that we might find freedom and in your will discover your peace. We pray, O oh God, that you would give us eyes to see the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would give us grace to follow in that way all the days of our lives and unto eternity. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. As I've already mentioned, and you may have picked up on as we read in Galatians 1 verse 6, Paul echoes the language of Exodus 32 here in verse 6 of our text to highlight the parallel between Israel's false worship and the Galatians' false gospel. Look down at verses 6 through 7 again as we, as we go through these verses. It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. That phrase so quickly is the same word that was used in Exodus 32 in the Greek translation of it that Paul would have and the Galatians would have read. The Old Testament that they would have read in Greek, it's the exact same words. He's saying you are like the Israelites who in Exodus 32, who have just been delivered from Pharaoh and from Egypt quickly turned aside. He says, I'm so I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, right? A parallel to turn to false gods is parallel to turn to another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, the Galatians had readily received the gospel of grace when Paul and Barnabas had preached Christ. It was a great move of God's Spirit. And yet, soon after Paul and Barnabas leave, a group of false teachers invaded these young churches and began preaching a different gospel. They began distorting the free offer of the gospel by adding to it extra requirements, namely the Jewish ceremonial law embodied in circumcision. Their message to these churches may have gone something along the lines of this. You know what Paul and Barnabas taught you was well and good. But before you can receive the Jewish Messiah, you must first become Jewish. That seems to make sense, right? And to become Jewish, you need to be circumcised and you need to follow other Jewish requirements like the dietary requirements. And you need to follow the Jewish calendar, including the Sabbath and the feast days. And there are about 613 other laws that you need to start following if you would lay the foundation for being able to accept Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, as your Messiah. You see, there's a lot that needs to go before Christ. 
But Paul is having none of this. Because to add to the gospel by definition negates the gospel. If you add any requirements to God's free offer of grace, then it is no longer grace. You can think of it this way. There are a lot of things that you can add stuff to and it still is essentially the same, right? If you add chocolate to milk, we still call it chocolate milk, right? It's a type of milk. You add something to it, it's still basically milk that's just flavored. But think of an empty room. And then you add a single chair. It's no longer empty. By definition, it is no longer empty. You've put something in it. And the gospel of grace is of such an exclusive nature that if you add anything to it, it is no longer grace. It completely distorts it beyond recognition. So what are the defining factors of this gospel of grace? Well, first, the graciousness of the gospel is defined by God the Father's eternal election. The Word of God clearly teaches that before the world was even created, prior to any human action, God in love elected His people to eternal life. In Ephesians 1, Paul explains it this way. He says, He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him, that's Christ, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The exclusiveness of the nature of grace is rooted in the reality that salvation is the eternal choice of God. Before we did anything good or bad, God elected His people in love. How could we add anything to God's grace that was bestowed upon us before the world even began? Right? How could you ingratiate yourself to God if before, un, before the world was even created, before you were even born, God chose to bestow His grace on you? You can't. And therefore you have to realize that your salvation is not caused by your willing or by your work, but is caused by the will of God. And to add anything to that makes grace no longer grace. Second, the graciousness of the gospel is that it was accomplished by Jesus Christ alone. It was Christ who lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God. It was Christ who was fully pleasing to His Father. It was Christ who went to the cross. It was Christ who poured out His blood to pay for sin. It was Christ who, while on the cross, descended in the depths of hell's torments as the Father turned His face away. It was Christ who died, who was buried and rose victorious on the third day, defeating sin, Satan, and death. It is the Gospel of Christ. And if you add anything to that, It only corrupts it. If you add your works to Christ's work, then the work is corrupted. If you add your suffering to Christ's suffering, then the suffering is no longer redemptive. It is deserved. The gracious nature of the Gospel is rooted in the fact that everything was accomplished by Christ on your behalf. 
He obeyed for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. You can't add anything to it because then it would no longer be the gospel of Christ. It would be the gospel of you. And that is no gospel at all. For Christ, Christ alone accomplishes salvation. Third, the graciousness of the gospel is that it was applied to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the Galatians were called. They were called. And when Paul uses that term here, he's speaking of a particular theological concept that in the Westminster Confession of Faith we called effectual calling. Effectual calling. We'll cover that eventually as uh, we go through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So you can look forward to that. And what it means is that the Holy Spirit, through the preached Word, shines a light into your mind so that you see your sin and you see the truth of the Gospel as its only remedy. When you are called, your mind is renewed and you embrace Jesus Christ as He is freely offered to you in the Gospel. It is the work of the Spirit of God to call His people into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is God who gives us both the grace to see the Gospel and the faith to receive the Gospel. And if you add anything to the calling of God, then it is no longer grace. It becomes what you deserve. It becomes what you have earned or what you have discovered. But the only reason that you or anyone else has believed the gospel is because the Father elected you, because the Son redeemed you, and because the Holy Spirit called you. It is all of grace. Grace is exclusive by its very nature. This is what Paul meant when he said in Romans 11, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do you understand the exclusiveness of grace? If you add anything to it, by definition, it is no longer grace. And therefore, your election is by the Father and not you. Your salvation is accomplished by Christ, not you. The application of that salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit and not you. This is why the teaching of the Judaizers was so troublesome. Because they were negating grace and by negating grace they were negating the gospel. For there is no other gospel but that which comes through grace alone. Now, in verses 8 through 9, Paul continues to explain the exclusive nature of the gospel. Look down at those verses. There, he says this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now Paul is making an argument that is not the messenger, but the message that matters. He imagines what would be the most convincing of false 
prophets. And he says, well, maybe the most convincing of false prophets would be me. Right? I'm the one who originally preached the gospel to you, me and Barnabas. So if, if me or a member of my preaching cohort were to come and change the gospel, that would seem like a rather convincing argument that you needed to change what you believe. And then he goes one more. He says, well, wait a second. Well, you may be even more convincing than that would be if an angelic being showed up and made some corrections to the gospel of grace that said, yeah, yeah, that, that's all good, but we need to add some works to this gospel of grace. That would seem rather reasonable for somebody if an angel showed up and changed things to say, yeah, okay, we'll go that way. But Paul says, no. Paul says, no. You cannot change the message of the gospel because the messenger is not what is important, but the message itself. Because the message of the gospel is not man's message. It is God's message. And God does not change. There are many who might claim to speak on behalf of God, who would claim for themselves the prerogative to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. But God alone has the right to speak forth His truth. He alone has the right to breathe out His words through those messengers whom He chooses. That is what 2 Timothy 3.16 means when it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. You see, no matter the messenger, it is the source of that message that matters because it comes from God. And because the source of of the gospel is God himself, the gospel can never change. Martin Luther, in his provocative manner, commented on these verses in Galatians chapter 1. And he said this, He said, that which does not teach Christ is not apostolic, right? It's not true. Even if Peter and Paul be the teachers. On the other hand, that which does teach Christ is apostolic, even if Judas, Aeneas, Pilate, or Herod should propound it. Companies can be very picky about the way their branding is used. If you've ever partnered with a company or a group like the YMCA, you will know that you can't just use their logo any way that you please. There's a lot of branding requirements that go in that you have to use the proper dimensions, you have to use the proper coloring, you have to use the proper placement if you're going to use their brand in any way. If you've ever done something like this, you realize there are a lot of rules around it. And the reason is, is because they have the right to control the way that their own message is communicated. And in like fashion, Paul is saying God has the exclusive right to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way that you authenticate the gospel is by its proclamation of salvation in Christ alone. Look at verse 9. It speaks of the gospel as being received, being received. That word is very important because it means that there was an initial deposit of the truth of the gospel from God. It's not made up. It was not devised by man. It was received by a revelation from God himself. Even as Paul describes in verse 12, you can look down there. We'll cover this in more detail next week, but read what he says. He says, 
For I did not receive it, speaking of the gospel, I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There are no other voices that matter on this topic. There are no other sources that get to add their input to the gospel. God alone has the right to reveal the truth of what it means to be saved in Christ. And those who claim to speak for God but preach anything other than Christ are to be accursed. For God has the exclusive right to reveal the gospel. Or maybe, as we term it, sola scriptura is the foundation of the message of the gospel. You see, there is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the nature of grace is exclusive. The nature of revelation is exclusive. And the third thing that we see in our text is that the nature of service to Christ is exclusive. Look at verse 10. There we read this. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You could imagine the Judaizers' argument against Paul reflected in his defense here, right? They were most likely saying something along the line of, Hey, you know, I know Paul said that you don't have to obey the law of Moses, but he was just trying to be nice to you, right? He was just trying to be a people pleaser. He was trying to gain your approval, right? He was giving you the easy way out. The gospel of grace is too easy. You need to do some things to first lay a foundation before you can believe this. For you know Paul, he's just trying to gain man's approval. This is a powerful argument, right? If we pause and think about it, we could all fall under such a line of condemnation. We all want the approval of man at some level. So how does Paul counter this argument? He says, if I wanted the approval of man, I would never have become a servant of Christ. Why be a servant of God if you want man's approval? For it's no easy task to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Historically, we know that all of Jesus' apostles sealed their calling in their blood except for one. That is, all the apostles died because of their message of Christ and Him crucified, except John, whom we, uh, we hear through historical sources, they tried to kill Him, but eventually they just exiled Him to the island of Patmos. Paul says of his own life, he was in prison, that he was flogged, that he was stoned, that he was beaten with rods, that he was shipwrecked three times, that he was constantly on the move, that he was often in danger from bandits and Jews and from Gentiles. He was often without food or proper clothing or shelter. Paul had a comfortable life before he became a servant of Christ. But when he was called, he put aside all people pleasing and he followed where the Lord led him. And if you if I were trying to please men, he said, why then would I become a servant of Christ? You see, to serve Christ is exclusive. And if you are seeking to please people, you will not follow him for you cannot have two masters. 
Listen to how Jesus explains this concept in Luke 16. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The Gospel by its very nature calls us into an exclusive relationship with Jesus Christ to serve Him alone. You have to give up pleasing people and follow after Christ and His Gospel. You see, the nature of the Gospel is exclusive. For the Gospel is by grace alone, according to the Word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. In John 14, Jesus summarizes the exclusive nature of salvation in these words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are not many paths. There are not many sources of truth. There are not many gods to serve. There is one way to be saved, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As the apostles declared, and there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other gospel. Nevertheless, the exclusivity of the gospel has a universal invitation to make. And this universality of the exclusive gospel is what is underlying Paul's argument with the Judaizers. You see, somewhat paradoxically, this exclusive gospel is opened up to all people. This universality is what is undergirding Paul's argument. The only way to salvation is through the gospel of grace, but this gospel call is for Jew and Gentile. It is for man and woman. It is for old and young. It is for poor and rich. It is for barbarian and Greek. It is for black and white. It is for Republican and for Democrat. For the gospel is not bound by our labels and our division. It goes forth in power to bring all under its gracious wing of grace. Paul's opponents were saying that the gospel was only for Jews. And therefore, if you would receive the gospel, you must first become a Jew. But the gospel is not merely for one people. It is for all those whom God has chosen to draw to Himself. And so as we read Galatians and as we study verses 6-10, through what we need to understand is that this exclusive gospel of Christ is meant to be proclaimed to all peoples. And therefore, we must go forth in power and in great confidence that as we proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit will draw in all whom God calls to Himself. For yes, it is exclusive in its power through Jesus Christ, but it is universal because it goes out to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And therefore we, as those who have been called by God, have been called to serve Him alone to proclaim the Gospel to all peoples. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you now and we pray 
with great humility before you and great thankfulness and rejoicing that you would pour your grace out upon us for we do not deserve it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross and you accomplished all that needed to be accomplished for our salvation. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for it is your work that has changed our hearts and has caused us to believe. And we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would send us forth as servants of Christ into this world, not seeking to please men, but proclaiming the gospel of grace that You might draw in men and women and children throughout this world. Oh God, would You send forth Your Gospel and power. We pray it in Your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.